Our text this morning is the first 12 verses of Acts chapter 13. So if you would please turn with me there. As we once again become reacquainted with the Apostle Paul. This is the very word of the living God. It is completely without error. It is completely sufficient for our lives. And it is completely authoritative over us. Acts chapter 13. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, And from there they sailed on to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil! You enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that You would use this Your Word to equip us and to grow us, to teach us more of who You are, more of who we are, and of our need for You. We ask, O Lord, that You would remind us of the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. For it is in His magnificent name that we pray. Amen. Have you ever wondered what missions is? Have you ever wondered why there's such an emphasis on missions? What's so important about missions? 
Now, I, I mean to go beyond the surface. There is scarcely a church that exists in America today in which there would not be a welcome and wholehearted encouragement for missions. Missions is something that everyone is for. There is no one in the country who is against missions. But why should our church, why should the church at large be involved in the mission work of the Lord Jesus Christ? This text this morning is an opportunity to learn because it is, in many ways, the very first missionary commissioning in the Bible. Certainly, at least in the New Testament, it is an opportunity to learn not just that people are sent out on missions, but why and to what purpose. And so what I would like us to see is I would like us to see the church. The focus here is only partly on the missionaries themselves. It's really on the church and why the church is committed to missions. And so I'd like us to see this morning, first, a church that is ready for missions. And yes, the church must be prepared and ready to send out missionaries. Secondly, I'd like us to see the church involved in missions. And then finally, a church that is dependent upon God for missions. So a church that is ready, a church that is involved, and a church that is dependent, all for the sake of missions. Let's begin then by looking at the the start of chapter 13, where this missionary endeavor is described initially in terms of the church that is going to be doing the sending. It's a church we have seen before, you may recall. It's the church at Antioch. In chapter 11, we looked at this church, how Barnabas was there, how he was an encouragement to the church, how he brought Saul, Paul, into the church to teach, and how in those days it was a committed church, committed to the Bible, committed to the kingdom, and committed to each other. Well, now this church has grown a bit. It's experiencing growing pains. You all know this as parents. When your children are young, they really can't do much at all when they're four, five, six, or seven. But as they grow, their ability to do things expands as they move into 6th and 7th grade, and then into high school, and then into college. They can do more and more. But that comes at a parenting price, doesn't it? Because the more that they can do, the more they have to be given liberty to do it. The more things that they can undertake, the more responsibility that they have. And so that's what's happening here to the church. This church has grown. It is flourishing. It is no longer dependent on those in Jerusalem or other missionaries as we saw in earlier chapters. It is a church that is established and ready to strike out on its own. As a matter of fact, Luke reminds us that it now has its own firm leadership. It has prophets and teachers. And he names off five of them. Two of them we know, Barnabas and Saul. But we're introduced to Simeon and to Lucius and to Menaean. 
We'll learn more about them in just a bit. But I want you to see here that the church here at Antioch is a mature church. Because the first thing that a church must be in order to be ready for missions is it must be ready in doctrine. It must have maturity. Missions is not something you simply decide to do and think about later. I've always found it curious that there is at least one denomination in our country that defines itself by the fact that they send missionaries. They're a missionary alliance. That should be an outgrowth of what the church believes. The missionaries take something. They must be equipped. They must be taught. And so for a church to be ready to do missions work, it must be ready first in doctrine. And being ready in doctrine involves not only knowing the right things. Surely that is the base level. We must know what the Bible teaches. But we are not ready to send out missionaries. We are not ready to teach others simply because we can recite the Shorter Catechism. Reciting the Shorter Catechism is a very helpful tool. But it must go beyond that. You see, the doctrine must affect our lives. It must build up the church. It must be a healthy and vibrant church because of what the church believes. Only a healthy church is able to look to the needs of others. Have you thought about that? When a church is in strife, when a church has great difficulties, they look inward. They're not looking for opportunities to use resources for the benefits of others. They're looking merely to survive. But there also must be a sense of selflessness about a healthy church. You see, it would have been very tempting for this church at Antioch to sit in their pews or their chairs or whatever they have and to be content simply to be happy. I mean, after all, the church at Antioch would be a good church to go to. It's the kind of church you'd probably ride your donkey a good 45, 50 minutes to, just to get to. It's a church where there were teachers who knew the Word of God. It's a church where there were leaders who were encouraging. It's a church where there was a commitment to prayer. It was a church that was growing and a place where we could be happy and satisfied. There was nothing we know at this point wrong with this church. It would be a churchgoer's dream. And the temptation when we have that is simply to sit on our laurels, to enjoy what is around us, and to not seek to expend ourselves for others. You see, this is why one of the first things that happens when a church needs to be revitalized is it needs to be given a sense of mission. It needs to be given a sense of being looking beyond its own walls, not merely fixing themselves, but being committed to mission. There is a pastor in our denomination who leads a well-known program called From Embers to Flame. And the idea is to revitalize a church, to make a church healthy that has become sick or ill or aged. And the way he does this is not by giving them a greater sense of their own self-worth. 
The idea is that he revitalizes churches. He works through the Word of God to give them a mission to latch onto, to see the Word of God grow them in their midst, and to see mission go out from them. This is what the kind of church that Antioch is. It, it reminds us of the importance of teaching. We can lose that sense because as we go throughout the American church, if we're honest, good, hard Bible study, strong, exegetical preaching, commitment to daily devotions is not something that is in vogue. It's various dramas, various fads and programs. It's various ways in which the church can be relevant to our society. But there's not a commitment to the teaching of the Word of God. But this church here at Antioch was committed to the importance of teaching. Luke reminds us, the first thing he tells us about this church is that it is filled with teachers and preachers. This is what is important to this church. But it is a church that is not only ready in doctrine, it is also ready in community. This is a New Testament church. Now we see so little example, so few examples of this, that we need to be reminded that the New Testament church is a church that is cross-cultural. It cuts across age barriers. It cuts across language barriers. It cuts across racial barriers barriers. It's been said that the 11 o'clock hour is the most segregated hour in America on Sunday. As all from one race go to their church, and all from another race go to their church, and various social economic strata go to their own churches. And it has even gotten to the point where we think about our mission in that terms. We have to come up with a mission to Hispanics. We have to come up with a mission to the suburbs, a mission to the urban areas, and we have to focus and tweak and mold the gospel to reach these various groups. Not so at this church at Antioch. Let me see if I can give you just a flavor from this, just merely from the names of the leaders. We have five men that are described as leading this church. The first is Barnabas. Do you remember Barnabas? He was a Levite. He was a member of the priestly caste of Judaism. He was from this area. He was actually a native of Cyprus. He was a man who was a Jew through and through, but was not a Pharisee. He was a Hellenistic Jew from Cyprus. And he was committed to building up the people of God, so much so that we really only know him by his nickname, the son of encouragement. So we have a man here who is a Levite, but doesn't represent the, uh, the formal religiosity of Judaism. Secondly, we have the last man who is named Paul. He is on the other end of the Jewish spectrum. He is a former Pharisee of Pharisees. To him, it would have been all about the family line. It would have been all about following the law, memorizing the Scriptures. He would have been a member of the ruling authority of the Sanhedrin. In other times, in other places, these would be two men who would go at it 
arguing, debating, poking at each other's positions. But here they work together. The, the third man is mentioned second, Simeon, who was called Niger. Now, you need to know that this word Niger means exactly what I think you would think it would mean. It is the Latin word for black. So, without much of a stretch, most commentators believe, and I think they're correct, that Simeon was a dark-skinned African. He was a black man. He was a black man who was a leader in a church with a former Pharisee and a member of the Levites. Two men who in other places would be all about being exclusive just merely to the Jews. And so here, the church and its leadership cuts across races. Another man we see is a man named Lucius. He comes from Cyrene, from North Africa, from an area that would be a mixture of Jewish refugees and Roman citizens and perhaps also other sub-Saharan Africans. So we have a, a church that is built up of multiple races, multiple geography. The final man is very interesting. His name is Menaean. And we have this little description of him that he was a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch. Now you remember we had our primer on Herods in the Bible a few weeks ago? There were four Herods. Now this is the Herod who had John the Baptist killed. This is the Herod who presided over the trial of Jesus, Herod the Tetrarch. Now, this man, Menaean, was a member of his court. The Greek word here means he was literally brought up with Herod, sat at his table and ate with him. So now we have not only merely a multiplicity of races and cultures, we have a multiplicity of social and economic standing. Here we have a man who was in the highest ranks of society of his day. And he comes and comes alongside an exiled Pharisee and a, a Levite who has given away all of his goods and a man from Africa. And all together they come to lead and build up the church. Don't ever think that God cannot use anyone that he wishes. Don't ever think that there is a small area in which God must operate. It is a great temptation for the church today. It is a great temptation for our church today. To think that the place that God works is in suburbs, among white, upper-middle-class professionals. I have just described 98% of the PCA. And everything else that we do in mission happens over there somewhere where we send folks. But you see, mission doesn't begin over there. Mission begins here, in our community, in our neighborhoods, in our cities. And the church at Antioch understood this. And we have just a little idea of how God can work when God takes a man who sat next to the man who ordered the death of his son, you have Herod and Menaean. And one of them is saved by the sovereign power of God. There is no neighborhood, no place where God cannot go. 
Well, this is a church that is ready. It is ready in doctrine. It is ready in community. But it is also ready in worship. I want you to notice that this missionary expedition begins in the context of worship. Verse 2 says, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit spoke to them. Now, the language here is very vivid. The idea is not just that they did a little bit of worshiping, then they did a little bit of fasting, and then the Holy Spirit afterwards, during a break, sent a PA announcement. The idea here is that all of these activities are occurring in the context of worship and fasting. It describes who the people are. We might even say that the Holy Spirit spoke to those who were worshiping and fasting. You see, the context here of missions is worship. It's not a program. It's not a plan. It's not a bullet point outline. The context for the mission work of the living God is the worship of God. So we could ask ourselves this question. If we are committed to missions, are we committed to worship? Are we committed to doctrine? Are we committed to community? Because if we are not, we are missing something of the heart of God. It is not enough to simply be for missions. We must be constantly improving our own understanding of the Scriptures. Constantly applying ourselves in our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our schools. We must constantly be gathering together to worship the Lord, to learn more of who He is, and to be committed to Him. Do you notice, too, where their focus is? It is not on what they think they can do. It is not on what they think is possible. Their focus is on the living God. Their focus is on the importance of prayer and of fasting. And if you don't recall, we spoke of fasting. It's probably been a year ago or more now. But fasting is a way in which we turn off the noise of the world and focus intently on God and His will. It is what Derek Thomas calls the missing jewel of the church. How often do we fast when faced with a large decision? How often do we fast when we know that God is at work in our midst? This is a church that is ready and prepared for the mission God has given to them. But it's not enough to simply be prepared. You must not simply lay out the instructions or the directions. You must take action as well. And so we see the church here involved in missions. And we see it first as they take on the task. Now, notice that this church has ministry throughout all of the levels of its church. It's not simply Paul and Barnabas, the experts. There are other teachers and prophets. And when the Holy Spirit tells them to set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work, then after fair and pressed, fair and pressed prayer and fasting, they all set them apart. Everyone in the church is involved in this mission work, is committed to it. So often today we think of the work of the church as synonymous with the work of the pastor. And if we are very broad in our thinking, we consider it the work of the pastor and the officers. 
But really, in the New Testament, the work of the church is the work of everyone in the church. It's the reason why in Acts 6 we see the apostles being committed to the Word and to prayer. How does everything else get done? Well, they bring along deacons. And then when that work is overwhelming, how does everything get done? Well, the people work. So the whole church is involved. There is ministry throughout this entire church. But specifically, the church sends two men at the behest of the Holy Spirit. Paul and Barnabas are set aside for this work. Now, I don't want you to miss something here. See, we read this text and we think, well, they sent Paul and Barnabas because the Holy Spirit told them to send Paul and Barnabas. We would too. But imagine this. Imagine if the Holy Spirit, through the calling of a man, through a time of prayer, told our church that we needed to send off on missions work the very best that we had. The very people that we rely on most. The people who are most committed to the church. See, we would stand and take a step back, I think. You know, oftentimes it has been said that there is a hierarchy amongst Christian leaders. The most intelligent, the brightest, the best equipped, they are to become teachers at seminaries. And then the next best equipped, they should be pastors of churches. And then finally, if we can scrape anybody up who's willing to go and beg for money, send them off as missionaries. But you see, at Antioch, they had the exact reverse mentality. The Holy Spirit told them, I want your very best committed to the mission. Do we have that mentality? You see, that kind of mentality doesn't just affect who we send off to India or Africa. That kind of mentality means that those who are best and brightest amongst us need to be given opportunity to minister. It means mentoring young people. It means mentoring parents. It means working together to make sure that everyone is as equipped as they can possibly be for the mission. It means we view the church not as a ragtag militia, but as a bunch of green berets being trained for battle. That's the mentality they had for this church. And it's, it's important that they did because when they undertook the task, they had opposition to overcome. You see, missions work is not easy work. It's not easy to transport your family thousands of miles from home. But you know what else isn't easy? It's not easy to be a middle school or high school student and to stand up to some peers about the authority of the Bible. That's missions work. It's not easy to stand up at work and acknowledge that God created the world and that He has given us His Word and we're to obey Him in how we treat our wives and our husbands and our children. But you see, that's mission work as well. We need to be equipped because there will be opposition from the world and this case is no different than any others. 
You see, this church was not discouraged by the setbacks that had come to them. They were not afraid of any opposition. And so they go off to the island of Cyprus. And they land and they begin to go from place to place, Luke tells us. They arrive at Salamis. And they proclaim the Word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And it may be that I'm reading just a bit into the text, but I think if they had gone to the synagogues and thousands were converted, that Luke would have told us. So, it seems to me that there was at least some level of setback, some success that was not reached. Now, can you imagine that? You're the first missionaries to be sent out. You are the the best of the best of the church of Antioch. The Holy Spirit sends you. People are praying over you. They're setting you aside. You go and you speak to people and they say, ah, no thanks. You ever done that? Someone's come to your... uh, You go to someone's door to speak to them or someone comes to your house and you try to tell them of the things of the Lord and they say, well, that's good for you. I I would really rather talk about um, the Texans. Or... Perhaps the weather. You see, that would be disappointing. But the heart of these missionaries is to push forward. They're not discouraged by the setbacks. And then, as they go through these setbacks, they come to the capital of Cyprus. A town by the name of Paphras. Now, Cyprus was a Roman colony, a Roman province. It had been growing for several decades. At this point in time, it has its first full-time governor. We'll get to him in a minute. But it was a place that was growing in population, in economy, and in importance. And they come into the capital city, and, and they actually get an invitation from the governor. Now, you have to imagine this. Those of you who aren't history buffs, a proconsul is probably the equivalent of if someone sat in the United States Senate for several terms and then retired and was then convinced to become the governor of a state. And being the governor of a state, the only person he had to report to was the president. He didn't have a legislature. They didn't need him. He was the governor. He was in charge. That's what a proconsul was. A proconsul was a serious civil magistrate. Now imagine that. If the governor of a large and populous state invited you and he said specifically, I want you to come and see me so you can tell me about this Jesus. That would be a little nerve-wracking, wouldn't it? Trying to prepare for what you would say, that would make presbytery exams seem easy. What am I going to say to the governor? What questions will he ask? Will I get tongue-tied? And then you come to court and you see a man by the name of Bar-Jesus. Now, I want you to appreciate the irony and the humor of our Lord in this. Bar-Jesus means in Hebrew, Son of Jesus. So they come to the court and they meet the man named Son of Jesus. Now, we might be tempted to say, this is a wonderful providence. It couldn't get any better than this. We want to tell the the governor about Jesus, and his right-hand man is named the Son of Jesus. Except for there's only one problem. The Son of Jesus wants nothing to do with Jesus Christ. 
position at court is founded upon his ability to do cheap parlor tricks. He's a magician. He has the ear of the governor. And he does not want Paul and Barnabas getting in his way. And so he pulls the governor aside and he badmouths the missionaries and he tells the governor, you don't want to be involved with this. Turn away from that. Can you imagine what they'll say back in Rome if you listen to these hicks from the back country? Come on. Let me do a trick for you. Which one would you like to see today? Which one would make you happy? And so in the face of this opposition, Paul and Barnabas might be tempted to say, this just isn't the place for the gospel. Guess we'll go someplace else. But they do not have that temptation. You see, because they are committed to God's mission. And they don't fear Bar-Jesus and his connections. And Paul looks at him, and I wonder if perhaps Paul sees a bit of himself in this man. Hostile to the Christian religion. And he looks at him, and in great humor, he says to effect, you're no son of Jesus, you're the son of the devil. That's who you are. You're wicked all the time. You're abusive. Why are you seeking to make crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And I believe he has in mind here Isaiah 40, where the great promise of God is that He will make paths straight. And He is making a path straight. He's making it through Paul and Barnabas. And so they rely on God. And in a sign and wonder, Elimus, Bar-Jesus, is struck blind. How can Paul do this? How can Paul stand up to opposition? If you've ever faced opposition, you know it isn't easy. Let me let you in on a little secret. When there's a strident opposition, your pastors get nervous. Your elders get nervous. Your Sunday school teachers get nervous. But you see, it is a bit like the way you train men in the military. Some young recruit will ask, how did you stop being scared? To a veteran. And the veteran will say, I never stopped being scared. I learned how to control it. And I learned that the mission was more important than my fear. And you see, that's what Paul and Barnabas are doing. And so they push aside this sorcerer who thinks so much of himself and they push on because they are dependent on God for their missions. You see, this is a church that is completely dependent upon God. They're not doing this mission work in their own strength. They are first dependent upon God to equip them. They show up on the mission field filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit is a marvelous leader. He not only tells them where to go, He goes with them. Do you see that? He says, set aside for me, Paul and Barnabas, and send them out. And then He goes with them. As Paul stands, He is filled with the Holy Spirit. They have been equipped by God. But I also think as a church and as a missionary team, they see God's commitment to the mission. And that helps make them dependent upon God. Now, I want you to think about this. Paul says, 
Do not make crooked the straight path of the Lord. And that straight path has gone 16 miles from Seleucia, or excuse me, from Antioch to Seleucia. It's gotten on a boat and gone a hundred some miles to Cyprus and then gone another hundred miles across the land of Cyprus all to get to a place where God can bring His Word to one man. That's how committed God is. He's made a straight path and no one better get in His way. This is like the path that is made by these gigantic bulldozers that we see across the street sometimes and that the kids love. They put that bulldozer blade down and they clear a path and anything in the way is wiped aside. That's how the Lord works. You see, the Lord here has a commitment to bring Sergius Paulus into his midst, into his people. And it doesn't matter that he's a Roman. It doesn't matter that he's a governor. It doesn't matter that there's a magician. All that matters is that God wants him. See, when we see God's commitment there, not just to big and vague things, but to individual things, it empowers us to speak His name. It empowers us to teach His truth. Because there are Sergius Pauluses out in Katy that God wants. I don't know their names. But they've got the name of Jesus written on them. There are Sergius Pauluses out in Houston and beyond. And it is our calling as the people of God to follow God's commitment, to not show up short where God's arm is long. God has a commitment to Sergius Paulus, and he grabs him. For you see here, as Paul pushes the sorcerer out of the way, in verse 12, the proconsul believed. He came to faith. And I think we have no reason but to believe that salvation came to Sergius Paulus this day. And he's an interesting man because he's really the first fully Gentile convert in the book of Acts. You know, Cornelius had hung around the synagogue. The Samaritans were half Jewish. Sergius Paulus was a Roman aristocrat. From Rome. You didn't get this kind of an assignment otherwise. You had to be a blue blood. You had to go to the equivalent of Harvard or Yale. There were very firm requirements. But God wants him, and so he pulls him to himself, and he believes. And what is he astonished at? Is he astonished at the miracle? Does he say, how did you blind the sorcerer? No. He is astonished Luke tells us at the teaching. He is astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Are you astonished at the teaching of the Lord? Because you see, if you are here merely for the sight and the show, if you come to church merely because you think it's the American thing to do, if you are with God's people because you think you can obtain good morals and values for your family, then you are here for the wrong reason. You must be here because you are astonished at the teaching of the Lord that at the same time, God can be just and the justifier of sinners. That Jesus Christ can become man and die for your sins and rise again that you might live forever. 
If you don't have that kind of astonishment, I call you to that today. No, I command you to that. That is the astonishment that comes from hearing the teaching of the Lord. It's a church that is dependent upon God for its being equipped to see God's commitment. And then finally, and in conclusion, it is a church that is dependent upon God to see the big picture. This is something that we must do as well. This church is committed to the big picture that God has laid before them. That they are not the end-all, be-all. That God has a mission to bring all of the Gentiles in. To have His people everywhere. And so we must do this as well. I have reminded you of this before. It is a temptation as we sit here in our lovely building with a wonderful piano and a sound system that works and a narthex where food and snacks are to become complacent. God doesn't want complacent people. He doesn't say it's wrong to have a good piano and a lovely building and snacks. But those things are to build us up so that we may go out with the Word of God. That is the big picture. The big picture is way bigger than Katy, way bigger than Houston. It is the entirety of the people of God. Are you committed to this today? If you are, God will equip you. He will allow you to push through opposition. And He will build you up with His teaching. God uses people like Barnabas and Paul and Lucius, and Simeon, and Menea, and you, and me.